And this is what I want to do with my stories. I want to change the world. I want to make it a better place because they have power. And because I wanted to be a doctor too. And I realized that stories is another way to heal. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Vijaya Bodak. She is a scientist turned writer, an atheist turned Catholic, and most recently, a writer turned publisher, as she began Bodak Books. She is the author of the young adult novel, Bound. You can find many of her musings at vijayabodak.blogspot.com. My guest today is Vijaya Bodak, and I know you brought a fun quote for us, so why don't you get started for us? All right. This is from Adventures in Two Worlds by A.J. Cronin. And I picked this quote because I could read you half the book, so I decided to choose the end. All human suffering is an act of repentance, a single contrite tear. One cry out of the depths is enough. The publican, kneeling far back in the shadows of the temple, had but to bow his head in sorrow. O Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the supreme prayer the prayer for me, surely the prayer for all of us. The imagery in that is incredible. Where were you at in your life when you read this? The first time I read this book was when I was 12 years old. And I loved it. This is a book. It's a memoir of a country doctor turned writer. And the way he speaks of his adventures, his struggles, his learning. It is so beautiful. And and it has stayed with me because I have always wanted to be a doctor from my childhood. But when I read this book, I knew I wanted to be a doctor who would later write about her adventures. When I was a grandmother... So this is what I thought. This is the life I wanted to lead, to heal people. You know, my childhood heroes were Mother Teresa, Albert Schweitzer, Damien, St. Damien of Molokai. These were my heroes growing up. So, so I wanted to be like him. And I, have, I read this when I was 12. And I was reading this at a time when I was also losing my faith. So I was a very religious child. I wanted to be a nun. But the problem of suffering was something that I could not reconcile with an omnipotent God. And I was losing my faith. And yet books like this, they, they did nothing to stop me from losing my faith. I was reading these books. And... They were doing nothing. I was reading my mother's library, by the way. And the, this is the second adult book that I read. 
The first one was Magnificent Obsession by Lloyd C. Douglas. And he was a pastor, so he has all these um, biblical-themed books. And I didn't realize until I read this again as a Catholic. I am 13 years old now as a Catholic. And that it's a very Catholic book. It, it's like when you don't understand something, it goes right over my head, you know? And I just read it for the, the story, the plot. Or there were some mm-hmm. religious things uh, and aspects. Uh, oh, yeah, that's nice. It's nice that he had some faith. But it didn't impress upon me. But this book I have read over and over and over again since I was 12 years old, and I am 57 now. Oh, it is a dearly beloved book. The copy that I hold right now is actually, I picked it up at um, a used bookstore in Montana. Ooh, we're in Montana. Oh, gosh. I would say Big Sky because there's a stamp over here called the Big Sky Community Library. Oh, no, no, no. It's You should know this because it's close by. It's the Bookworms, 14 Canyon Street in West Yellowstone, Montana. Oh. So we were driving. Very fine. Yes. So we were driving through and I found this book, a childhood book that I loved because my own copy, I have lent it out and people did not return it back. So I've always been on the lookout. And to find this was a great treasure. I still remember that moment, seeing that book and saying yes. Aren't used bookstores just magical places? Yes. Yes. Oh. I'm a huge fan. You can find some serious treasure. Yes. And I... uh was just visiting my son in D.C., and we went to the largest used bookstore in Maryland called um, Second Story. And I found the most amazing things. I mean, I was flying, so I couldn't carry as many things, but as many books that I could hold and carry, I did. And my husband said, you know you have to pack all those. I said, I know, and I'm very good at packing. (laughs) And we brought that suitcase loaded with books home. Well, and what do you think it is about stories that just wax us like that? You know, I think they touch us at the heart level. I think that's what stories do, fiction and nonfiction. I I have to say that um, I do find it a little bit ironic that I'm actually a nonfiction writer and a short story person who is on a podcast with someone who talks about fiction a lot. But the thing is that stories touch you in the heart in the way that nonfiction doesn't. Because in nonfiction, you are appealing to reason. You are talking about that logical step that you're going to take. You're going to make arguments. But stories they reel you in, like, you know, if you have great characters or an exciting plot, I mean, they reel you in into a new world that you get to experience. And 
that's what I love about stories. In a way that you could never reach someone, say, like, with an, with an argument. It breaks down our boundaries. Yes. Yes. There's that suspension of disbelief, right? Because you are now in a new world. So anything is possible because you are making a promise at the beginning of a story. And you're going to see if the promise is going to be fulfilled. So there's a tacit um, agreement between the writer and the reader. You're making me a promise. And if you do not fulfill that promise, I will fling that book across the room. <laughs> well, and it, it seems to me, thinking about the quote that you brought and how important this book was to you, that even though it's nonfiction, that maybe it being a memoir, it being creative nonfiction seemed to break down some barriers for you and really touch your heart. Oh, yes. Because the thing is that, I mean, there's dialogue. I mean, I will be reading um, an excerpt from it. There's dialogue, there's description. I mean, and you can tell that you cannot remember so far back that somebody said something, but it is, uh, it is the things that you remember, the, mm. the general the story that you can remember. And so he brings all his creative faculties to his, to his memoir. And the other thing is he has written a lot of novels, and I have read them. And in each of his novels, I see some of the truth. You know, it's based on a case that he then... Um, imagines even more. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of his stories, um, you know, he was, as a doctor, you get to see things that maybe most people don't get to see. You get to see great goodness, but you also get to see great evil in the way that people treat each other. And, you know, you examine the patient and then they have bruises on their body and you know that they beat him. So he has been able to come in contact with the entire strata of society, you know, from the good, the bad, and the ugly. And and he weaves beautiful stories. It, it actually makes me think of another vocation where you see that great goodness and the depravity. And it makes me think of the priesthood. Yes. That, that one of my friends, when I went to Washington State University... Hello, my friend. A fellow cougar. Yeah, girl. <laughs> um, that one of my friends that I made, because I worked in the hospital on night shift in the medical laboratory, and one of the pre-med students, um, that a lot of the pre-med students would come in and I would teach them a little bit about microbiology if the ER wasn't busy so that they could see it in action because they didn't get a lot of microbiology labs as pre-med. So being able to see it like in action in a clinical setting, I thought might be helpful to them. So I would show them that. And I made friends with one of these gentlemen. And later he left the pre-med program and went into the seminary. And I got to attend his ordination. And now he's a priest in the Diocese of Spokane. And I just think about how that desire to be a healer was a direct translation for him. 
And you know something? It's it's so interesting that you point this out because I I have often thought, you know, doctors can heal. What an amazing vocation. But they can only heal the body. And a priest heals the soul. I mean, your body, I mean, in the end, you're, it is not going to matter. Uh, I mean, what, what, what? In the end, it will, I don't think it will matter um, that you were lame or you had scars because when we are resurrected, it will be a glorified body. But to have that glorified body, you have to go to heaven first, you know, so... So your soul has to be, you know, squeaky clean, <laughs> in a state of grace, you know, as we were made to be, and then we will get to be the way God created us to be. It doesn't happen in this life, though. No, I'm. I want to go to heaven so much, and and I broke down in tears. Uh, when I realized that I will have to suffer through purgatory, when I realized that, because I don't want to suffer. I, I just want to go to heaven. <laughs> so, and I thank priests for that, because, you know, my soul gets sick and they heal me. Well, and that, that, that thing is that soul sickness, it has ramifications on everything else. It has ramifications on our biological bodies and our social institutions and relationships. It's like you can't impact one without impacting the other. Yes. We are, we are not just souls. We are body and soul and intellect. I mean, it's, we are... We experience everything through the body, even this experience of story. I mean, did you realize that when uh, you read a book, when you read a story, they, they have done these, um, uh, these uh, functional MRI studies where they see the brain um, light up, and they see that when you are reading a story that the same, same areas of the brain light up as if you were actually doing that action. And wow. So we so story is like literally we are we are empathizing, right? We are experiencing it in our minds as actually happening. So I think that's pretty amazing because you know we talk about stepping into somebody else's shoes, but literally that is what is happening when we read stories. So I think it has this tremendous power to change you i mean i've been shaped by stories um when i took a, a writing class uh it's uh, from the institute of children's literature i had to write a biography and my biography came out as the books i read at specific times in my life this was not planned this is how i experienced life because my world was really small. You know, we were growing up very poor. So the world is very small because you cannot go out and do things. So books were my, you know, they're like the magic school bus, right? I mean, you get to be in different places and experience different things. And they have shaped me. And this is what I want to do with my stories. I want to change the world. 
I want to make it a better place because they have power. And because I wanted to be a doctor too. And I realized that stories is another way to heal. Not that I planned it. I just fell into children's writing. It's not like I planned any of this. You, you have to realize. But it's in retrospect when you see it. You know, I've been writing now for 20 years. I realize how healing they are. The stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell to others. I know you and I talked a little bit offline about starting off a scientist and ending a writer. So why don't you walk us along that timeline of you going from a healer in a non-literary sense to ending up doing so in a literary sense? I have always been interested in medicine. I love the human body, how amazing it is that you have a hand or you have an eye and how it works. And from my childhood, I was bringing children home that were hurt so that I could bandage them up and things like that. I love to do that. And I studied for the sciences. I loved the sciences. The natural sciences gave me the foundation for medicine. And, and I was good at it. But uh, So I studied microbiology at Washington State. And I loved it. It was like a whole new world opens up in the microscope. And it is so beautiful. People don't even realize how beautiful this microcosm is, you know. And, uh, and I loved it. And so the plan was to go to medical school. But um, uh, the last year, so my mother was very sick. She got stomach cancer. And, uh, and she was dying. And she died within... Um, six months of diagnosis and I was really depressed when she died and I was afraid because I felt like there was no support and when you look at the cost of going to medical school it it was just exorbitant because I couldn't work the way I did when I went to do my undergraduate studies I was afraid. And I'm going to say this, whenever you make a decision in fear, it's wrong. <laughs> It'll always be the wrong thing. But I didn't know it back then because I had lost my faith at age 12 and I was dependent only on myself. I had told myself, you will not be dependent on anybody else, not God, not your father, not your husband you will be independent because you cannot trust people to take care of you. And uh, so I uh, was very independent. I became financially independent at the age of 17 because I was working. And, uh, but I lived at home with my mom. And, and when she died, it was just, uh, I did not have the confidence to take out a loan and go to school in a different place uh, and be in debt over $100,000. I could not do it. I, I, I was so afraid. And so when the acceptance letter came, I rejected it. I, I said, no, I cannot do this. I'm going to be sensible and go get a job. So that's what I did. So I worked um, 
in research, I, I, I moved down to California where my boyfriend was at the time. Now he's my husband. And uh, so I stayed there in the Long Beach area, worked as a, like a med tech or a research tech. And, uh, and I thought about going back to medical school because I had established my residency. But California, I just hated it. I hated it. The hustle, the bustle, the pace of life. I'm a small town girl. I loved Pullman, the wheat fields. I, I liked that open space. So I went back uh, to Pullman for my graduate school because there was no uh, marriage proposal coming from my husband, actually. So I said, I'm not going to live down here in L.A. We were not living together, but, you know, we were in the same location, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I was not going to live down there without a marriage proposal. It was it was a terrible place to be as a single woman. So I went back to Pullman, and he was starting up a new business, uh, making computers. So he had a job, and then he would go to his business. So I said no. There was no marriage going to be happening here. So so I went and studied. Um, biochemistry and biophysics and uh i loved it i i loved the time that i there in the intellectual pursuit to cut this long story short what happened is that um so i got my phd in biochemistry biophysics and i then my husband then we got married okay so so we came around yes but it was convoluted because I was now stuck in a program that I loved and I wanted to finish and he was working and he was going to Belgium. He, he had, uh, the business did not take off. So he ended up uh, doing other things and he wanted to work for a smaller company. So he, um, he was moving to Belgium and I was like, you're moving in the wrong direction, you know. <laughs> Geography, you know, it's like we're getting further and further apart. So, but we finally decided that, okay, we'll get married. And I was finishing up and he had a job in Belgium. So I applied for postdoc positions within a hundred mile radius. And what does Murphy's Law te- T teach you? That Anything that can go wrong will. Right. So I had these lovely interviews for our wedding uh, honeymoon. I went on three interviews. <laughs> That's what I did. So two were in Belgium and one was in Germany. And of course, though, the place that offered me uh, a fellowship was in Germany, which was the hundred miles away, not the ones that were closer. So, but. I was very excited and happy that I had a fellowship to so instead of working on really molecular things at the at the atomic level and the molecule level I started to work on plant fungus interactions you know so uh because the mechanisms you'll find it's very interesting that the mechanisms for infection and healing are very similar in plants and animals you know we we have you know the same types of responses, you know, like the calcium influx or the ATP response or 
We should cut all that stuff out. I'm rambling. <laughs> no, because what I'm sitting here thinking about is I'm like, is she going to talk about Michael Horizon? Yes. Is she going to talk about what it does with carbohydrates? <laughs> so, so the thing is that I just love learning about botany because I was always like a plant. I mean, I ate my plants. I didn't actually know anything about them except that they feed me. So learning about botany was just amazing. So I was just growing. You see, in my PhD work, I'm growing. My postdoc work, I'm growing. And and it was such a wonderful time, to, except for, of course, the, the driving. That was the thing that broke me. It was driving 100 miles every single day takes its toll on you because it's 100 miles there and 100 miles back. Mm. But I learned a lot, and um, and then uh, the postdoc was finishing up, so I got a postdoc back in the U.S. It was at Purdue. Then my husband was looking for a job there. He didn't get a job there, but he got one at Boeing. So I was alone for a while uh, in at Purdue, and that was the time when I discovered that I was pregnant. So. I I got rid of all my interview things for Seattle area. And uh, I said, I'm going to stay at home with my babies because who's going to take care of my kids? It's like, right? I knew the scientific world. I mean, you are expected to be there 12 hours a day. If, you, if this is your goal to have your own lab, which was my goal, to have my own lab to do the kinds of work that I wanted to do, which is, which all had to do with tropical diseases. You know, that's what I would have liked to study is tropical diseases and how to help, uh, help them. Because a lot of people, you know, the NIH funds a lot of cancer research and this research and that research. But when you think about who all is dying, you know, they're in the poor I mean, countries and there's not a whole lot of research money that goes into fighting malaria because, you know, it's in Africa, it's in India. Yeah. So, and, and you're absolutely right to point out that the, the, the racial and economic disparity leads to a disparity in research. Right. So, um, but, you know, when you become a mother, it's like, who's going to love your kid more? nobody I mean I'm the only mother they'll ever have and so I I just said okay I'm I'm going to cancel my interviews in Seattle and we'll go from there and my husband was very supportive because um, you know he didn't worry about the money so he knew he had to earn all the money now so the transition was difficult and because I missed the intellectual, you know, like shop talk, you know, when you're drinking coffee. And yes. Thinking, I, I mean, I, I missed that. And, and you don't get that just being a mother with other mothers because you don't have anything else in common besides motherhood. And there are all stripes of motherhoods, you know, I mean, I found that I didn't really have a lot of common interest with other moms and uh, 
or like they didn't write to they didn't read books i didn't watch tv they all watched tv i mean it was just like it's like yes we can all be mothers but we can't all be friends <laughs> so so um so that old childhood dream came back of stories because the thing was i was reading to my kids all the time i was reading picture books and i discovered american literature which i was i didn't know much i i grew up on british literature and indian literature so i was discovering all this new stuff and i loved it and when i was pregnant with my second child i said i'm going to take a writing class and the one that fit in my schedule as in with my husband's schedule because he had to take care of the kids was the one on writing for children so that and it's the one that was closest to my house and so i said i'll take that i'll take that class and it was like coming home it was like coming home i mean i loved it and and i am so happy that i fell into it my whole life i have fallen into things with no idea or i've jumped into things with no idea and like the net appears you know you just say i want to do this and i go out there and i do it and it's that opposite reaction of the fear that you were talking about earlier yes yes that radical trust and like i have no idea where this is going to go but okay if i remember correctly there was something in your book that talked about a very similar situation right an excerpt from adventures in two worlds the context is that he is shifting he has just come home from his doctor's appointment and he has something to tell his wife bayswater and our home had never looked more attractive the blood rushed to her head you don't know when you're well off we're happy here absolutely settled with the children and everything you've always had that bee in your bonnet never content wanting to dash off at a minute's notice you've dragged me around so much since we got married you ought to have bought me a caravan but i've had enough of it i won't stand any more she had to pause for breath in any case you're much too young to think of harley street I'm not thinking of Harley Street. Then what in heaven's name are you thinking of? Selling the practice. You could never sell the practice here. She brought up the argument triumphantly. It's much too large and too personal. My dear, my dear, please don't get mad. I'm afraid I've already sold it. She turned white. She couldn't believe it. Then she saw it was true. She was beyond words. She had been reading fairy stories to the children the night before, and now, ridiculously, she thought of Aladdin's wonderful lamp, which had brought its possessor everything he wanted, and which, unappreciated, had been so foolishly, so stupidly flung away. She whispered palely, "What are you going to do?" I was silent, with for once a shamefaced air. As a matter of fact, I'm going to try to write and <laughs> the excerpt. 
Oh, boy. Oh. I'm going to leave it all, and I'm going to go right. Because he, they struggled to get to where they were. And now he's going to leave it. I could read so many excerpts. Do you see all the bookmarks? I like, I love this book so much. Stories yes. matter. I hope you will pick up a copy. Oh, if you saw my to-be-read list, but I'm always adding to it. And that's the thing is I end up adding so many of the works that my guests bring to the show. So thank you for sharing yet another fabulous one with me. And I love that it's another scientist turned writer. Yes. That's so much fun. Thank you. Right. And you know, when I was a child, I was very religious. I had a relationship with my guardian angel. I was in love with Jesus. I was falling out of chairs because Jesus was sitting next to me. I mean, you know, and I could fall down because I'm making space for him. And I had no fear. In fact, my mother worried about me constantly because I lived fearlessly. And it's like, she's going to get killed by a bus or something because I was, but my guardian angel has worked overtime. Okay. I thank him every day because he is so wonderful. The fear that comes, I think, again, it is, it is not from God. I think fear comes from the devil. And he prevents you from doing what has been placed upon your heart. Even if you're not religious, you know, we have things placed upon our hearts by God. And mm -hmm. if you follow those instincts and those desires, you will be happy. So I'm very happy that I am not a nun, that I am a mother, and that I'm married to the most wonderful man who supports me. And, you know, we, after the children started school, that's when we started seeing other influences upon them. So we were moral atheists. You know, we didn't believe in God. We, we just believed in ourselves. You know, we're, we're full of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, we, It's a very popular religion right now. Yes, actually. And we were our own gods. And we thought the world of ourselves because we're educated and we can do things. We are living a good life. A religion is for the weak, right? I mean, those who have no hope, well, then they have God and they're praying to God, right? But we didn't, we could rely on ourselves. So we were full of ourselves. And once the children started getting older, going to school, then we said, hmm, maybe what other authority will they have? How do you counter influences that you don't agree in the culture because the culture around us was kind of going crazy. So that's what turned us to God. And also the writing, because remember, writing is this, I love that it's a gift that you give to yourself, you know, this gift of time to write and ponder things. Because in that quiet space, you can hear the voice of God too. And mm. I was writing a lot about these things, you know, like, what am I going to do with my kids? I mean, I grew up with this tremendous faith and I was better for it because, you know, I lived fearlessly. And But my kids don't have any of this stuff that I had as growing up as a child. So we started researching things. But here I am writing about these things in my journal, 
even as I'm writing little magazine stories and whatnot, you know, because I was, again, very practical. I wanted to write. So of course, I started on the great American novel, but I was practical. Also, I said, you know what? I want this to pay for itself. So I started submitting things to magazines. From the very beginning, I said, it has to pay for itself. It did. I was very lucky, you know, that I was able to get in with magazine writing and building a portfolio, so to speak. So, but then because you are writing these short things in the middle of the night, because that's the only time you have when you have young kids, that, um, that the novel writing just, it was put aside, you know. I would maybe look at it for a month each year. I could write a book about how not to write a novel. There you go. Ta-da, bestseller, because there would be every writer out there would be reading that bad boy <laughs> instead of writing their own book. Right, right. So, but this is how I became a children's writer. And why children? You know, I have been to conferences where they, it's not just for the kids, you know, and they ask me, well, why do you write for children? You know, like they think you should graduate to like adult writing or something. and they don't realize that actually the best books, the most meaningful books, all of these things happen in your childhood. And for me personally, that writing for children, you see, I have a childhood sense of wonder. I mean, even now, I mean, I, when we had snow here in South Carolina, it was magical, you know, when Christmas we got snow. It's like, I'm still a child inside in wonder of all the things that are around us. So the natural beauty, the way things work. So I wanted to bring that love of science and just the wonder of it to women kids. So, and because I lived and breathed this kind of like, it was in my cells, you know, all this natural science that um, I was able to then channel it into children's writing. And there's a market for it. You know, so the school and library market is is huge. And the best part of it is that I don't have to do anything to sell these books. That's a miracle. <laughs> so I have never learned how to do any kind of like marketing because I'm writing in a field where librarians find these books and they they're in schools and the libraries. But what about the book that I read of yours, and which is a novel? Yes. Entitled Bound. Yes. So this is what happened, is that uh, while we were going through our CIA and learning about the faith, and I was falling in love with Jesus again. So that was the process for me, is falling in love. The thing that concerned me is that what is the biggest problem? The, the thing that kept running in my head is that abortion is the greatest evil that I can think of. And it is happening rampantly. You know, I mean, all over the world, it is accepted. And in India, especially, and in China, too, you know, girl babies are aborted more. So there's this discrepancy because everybody wants boys, boys carry on the family name. So these things were in my head. And I, 
I'm a short story writer. I'm not a novelist. Remember, I don't even know how to write one. But in order to answer these questions, I have to have stories. And it's through story that I can examine things. And so I wanted to write about, are you your brother's keeper? And then the abortion issue kind of like tied into it. Um, but the reason I had to write this was because I was compelled. And it was a gift that was given to me <laughs> because the entire arc of the story uh, came to me in like instantly when I started thinking about the story. And you have to realize that I have uh, two cousins whose uh, life circumstances I borrow. So these are, um, one cousin was uh, born deaf because her mother had uh, rubella during pregnancy. Mm. And she was told to abort the baby because most of these babies don't survive. And if they do, they have huge problems. And my aunt said, no, we're not going to abort this baby. And we'll take whatever we can get. And this couple, um, so my aunt and uncle, they suffered from infertility. So they had been trying for 10 years to have a baby. And they, she finally gets pregnant after 10 years. And so this is a very wanted baby. And so they have this baby and she has a lot of problems. You know, she has a heart problem. She's born deaf. Um, and, and they didn't know all these problems until, you know, she was in an incubator as an infant because of the heart problems. So she had to have surgery. They took her to the U.S. And they wanted for her to have a, a sibling. So, again, they couldn't get pregnant, so they adopted a little child, a little girl. And she was burned horrifically as um, when she was nine years old. They were playing with matches. And she nearly died. But, you know, she's alive now. She's gone through so many struggles. So both my cousins are doing very well. But in my mind's eye, you know, the girl who got burned, she kept asking, now she's a character. You see, it's not my cousin, but she kept asking me these questions that I was asking myself about, well, am I responsible for my sister? You know, why should I be responsible? Why can't I have my own life? I mean, these were just this very snarky, teenagery voice was speaking in my head. And so the entire arc of the story came to me. It's like, I'll use these two people, both who are damaged in some way, to examine the question, are you your brother's keeper? And boy, when I'll tell you the answer, the answer is yes, actually you are. <laughs> you are your brother's keeper. It's that we are responsible for each other. Well, and one of the things I have to say that really spoke to me about your book, and especially now that we're in this post-Roe versus Wade reversal age, is that your book addresses the hard cases yeah. that everyone wants to be an exception. And your book yeah. covers this and covers it in a human way and it humanizes the people that are going through these situations. And the other thing that blew me away that would um, probably surprise some people 
is you even humanize the people that work in the abortion industry. Yeah. We are all flawed. And, you know, earlier we were talking about story, how you can reason something out. A lot of times you can literally, with convoluted reasoning, you can come to a bad conclusion because you can convince yourself. I have seen scientists do this all the time where they take their data and they massage it so that it fits their ideal. Their agenda. Or their agenda or their hypothesis. But they are so married to an idea that they can't bear to see what the data is telling them, right? So they'll massage it, you know? But the sad thing is, is that's not science. Like, if you love science, that's not science. No. So now our only help is God, because I clearly cannot trust myself. I mean, what do I know? But I will trust what God has given me, and he's given me a brain, and I'm using it. I think that through stories, we can change people's hearts and minds, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Inbound, um, I, I wanted to choose those hard cases because, as you said, you, you choose uh, Ryan Bumberg wrote a book about, uh, you know, he's, uh, a vic- his mother was raped and then he was conceived. He's a child of rape. And everybody says, you know, you should have it. You should be able to have an abortion in case there's rape. And, and he says, well, I am that person. And my case is used. It, it happens less than 1% of the time. And this is used to kill millions of children. And he says, and his life has value. Why should he be punished for a crime of his father? So it mm-hmm. is. So I I did want to choose the hard cases because I wanted to argue this from the the natural viewpoint, from natural logic, because I wanted to reach not necessarily the Catholic readership, but I wanted it to be accessible to people of all faiths and of no faith just using the argument from natural law, that it is unnatural to kill a child. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's fantastic storytelling. It's not, even though we're talking about the hard issues that are contained within the book, it's absolutely not this um, just a pro-life apologetics bullet point book. This is a wonderfully told narrative tale with beautiful characters that I really enjoyed. Who was your favorite? I have to ask. You know, in some ways, it's her best friend's mom. Mm. And I know that she's a minor character in it all, but she's holding everybody solid and holding down the fort and staying as that pillar, like Our Lady, that we can all gather around. Yes. When the sea is rough. Isn't it wonderful? I, I want everybody to have Colleen's mom. Someone like that in their corner. She actually made me think of a friend of mine's mom, but I'm not going to name names because I want to maintain her privacy. But I definitely had a friend's mom in mind when I was reading that. Yeah. No, I mean, I have had angels in my life, you know, that, and 
it's really your friends and your family can do so much to help out. And, you know, we have to be not be prideful to be able to ask for help sometimes when we need it. See, my, my favorite character is Joy. My yeah. favorite character is Joy because she's a child in a woman's body. But she's so innocent and she's so close to the truth. And I have known children like her. Um, some of them have Down syndrome. But, uh, you know, what's really fascinating is that I didn't set out to write a book about people with special needs. And yet, um, moms who have moms with kids with special needs, it really, really resonates with them. Because here is a character who is not, she's so, she comes to life, you know? She's not just a bit character, the problem child. You know, she is, she's so rich. Absolutely. And see, and I have known kids like this. They're grown women or men, but they have this beauty, uh, this innocence of childhood that they have never left it. Well, and what a gift. Like you said, it's that wonder that almost keeps us alive. Because there are a lot of bad things happening, but I look at my kids and they give me hope, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping for some more novels from you. So speak to me of what you've got coming down the pipeline. Okay, so the great American novel is a historical novel. And those are easy to write, super easy. Just yeah. In the bag. So I am not working on it, but it is the one that calls to me constantly. So I want to finish it and start submitting it and maybe get an agent because I, I've never wanted an agent because I've been able just to do things on my own. But I think I need, I'm at the point where I think I need help. And I think that the, that the agent can help me. But in the meantime, you see, I, I'm always bursting with ideas. And so the way to get rid of those ideas is to write short things and get them out of my head or in a magazine somewhere, everything. But I have a picture book that will be coming out, I think, next year. So I'm really excited about that. And Bound has a sequel. I'm ah. A, yes, you know, it's going to be called Found. I like it. I like it. Yes. I love plays on words. Yes, yes. And uh, I have not written a single sentence, but the story is in my head. And and I I do love it. So so the thing is, I'm always trying to fit everything in a short story format because that's what I'm my comfort level is. And I realize that some stories you cannot put them in this little box that you want to put them in. So you need that space. I, I hope to God that I can create a story that is just as compelling. We pray for that. Yes. So, so that's what's happening on the, the not writing front. <laughs> oh, pull it out of the drawer. And I have to ask, what time period is your historical set in, if you're willing to share that? Yeah, it's 1975. All right. Do you realize that's historic? I was 10 years old. 
I know, right? It's like um, the historical fiction that I've written, it ends in 1975 oh. and that it's historical. And, yeah. and so it's like, man, that that's that's pretty crazy. And, and that the other book that I wrote that happens around 2000, that that would be, that's on the verge. It's on yeah. the verge it's- of being considered historical. I'm like, no, 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 no. Not allowed. That's contemporary, by golly. Like that new 90s music that's out, you know? (laughs) It's funny. I think that 30 years is what you're given for historical. If the events of the story are happening 30 years to the present time, then that's historical. But but the 90s weren't 30 years ago. So we're good. We're good, right? (laughs) So far. I'm just going to hang on to that. Hang Um, on to that. That's right, girl. Well, I have a hundred over-caffeinated questions burning a hole in my pocket over here. So do you think you're ready for a rando round? Uh, yeah. Okay. So we play with fun dice, so you can pick either tie-dye or pink with mermaid sparkles. I think tie-dye. Tie-dye. Okay, I'm going to roll the dice and see what questions we end up with here. 64. What is your favorite holiday? Oh. I know, it's the Feast of St. Bonaventure. No. That's today. (laughs) That's today. That's today. No, but it's between Christmas and Easter. And I have to admit, I love Christmas. I love Christmas, the Midnight Mass. And all the preparation that goes into it. I love that I sing in the choir. And um, we always get a foretaste of everything. Oh. Everybody is doing Advent hymns. And, you know, we do that at church. But in practice, we are, you know, practicing Christmas music. How fun, you sneaky thing. Yes. Oh, that's great. I never even thought of that. We have eight single digits. What is your favorite place to read? In bed or on the porch. What kind of chair do you have on the porch? Or are you just sitting on the step? Uh, no, I, we have a little couch. It's comfy. And I have an, my old rocking chair, the, the glider part where you have put your feet. I've taken it there. That sounds pretty perfect. And five, another single digit. What is your favorite food? <laughs> I just had some mango lassi. We made some for my critique group. Very easy recipe. This is for your listeners. All right. One part buttermilk, two parts mango juice. And you Ooh. add things like cardamom, which I love, and or you can have some mint leaves on top. And have it, it's so refreshing. It sounds delicious on a hot day like today. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, my last question for all of my guests is, what gives you hope right now? Oh, our blessed mother, because she is going to crush the head of the serpent. My immaculate heart will triumph, she said. So I am waiting for her to 
to crush all the evil in this world. That's what gives me hope, because I believe. And the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's going to happen. <laughs> it was His promise. We are praying. Yeah. Of course it has to happen. So, yes, the promises. Uh, I love the Psalms, and the Psalms give me so much hope. I think you have to have hope in order to go forward. So, so, and then when I look at the kids growing up, that gives me hope. They're pretty amazing. Well, it has been such a lovely time spending time with a kindred spirit, as Anne of Green Gables would say. So thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your life and your work. Thank you for inviting me. It has been a pleasure. God bless you. God bless you too. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.